0: Ahoy there me hearties and welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast with Stories Beyond the Horizon. My name is Matt Vala and this is episode 7. This is the penultimate episode to series 1 which has been the adventure through the prologue to Genesis. The plan for this podcast was always to take big chunks of the Bible so that we could move through it at pace and explore the great narrative arc of the story of the Old and New Testaments that within it hold many other stories that tussle and fight against each other. But we spent much more time in these few beginning chapters in Genesis because they hold these origin myths which have had such an impact on the world in which we live. And I don't know how you feel but for me it's been quite the ride actually just putting this all together and trying to describe this story as it unfolds. These last two episodes of this series are a chance to just take stock of these first 11 chapters. Next week, I'm going to provide a kind of overall summary, rereading some of the stories we've already read in a way that brings together the threads uh, of these first uh, seven episodes. Uh, but this week, I want to focus particularly on the work of one man who has really deeply influenced me. He's a peace activist and a Bible scholar uh, from uh, out west in uh, near Los Angeles and California uh, and his name is Ched Myers. But before I talk about Ched Myers, uh, just a shout out to new listeners. We had new listeners last week from the Philippines, from Kenya and from Thailand so welcome to all of you. It's exciting that the Bible Pirate crew is growing globally And I said in the previous episode that the two hotspots of Bible Pirate worldwide were Melbourne in Australia and Bracknell in England. Well, I'm afraid Bracknell has in fact now been overtaken by Huddersfield right up in the north of England. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do the accent. What I've realised is that these place names I get on my uh, podcasting stats are are places where the servers are, not necessarily where all the people are. So I think Huddersfield is sort of in between Manchester and Sheffield and Leeds. So I think it's the combination of those places. Uh, But big shout out to the north of England. If you're not from England, then maybe you don't know much about the difference between the north and the south. But in my experience, it's pretty significant. The North remembers, much like Game of Thrones, the North remembers while the South forgets. There's a deep memory there, much like Cornwall here. But this power of place is actually a big theme for this episode today and is one of the central focus themes of the work of Ched Myers. All of the people I've quoted on this podcast so far are people whose work has influenced me in, uh, in positive, in meaningful ways, even if I've wanted to engage and critique it. But I, I have to say that about Ched Meyer's work on a completely different level. Uh, in fact, I would say that nobody has influenced my engagement with the Bible more than he has. I don't always agree with everything that he says. In fact, I wrote a critique of Ched's work for my master's thesis, But it's because it's so compelling, it's so engaging to me, and it's such a powerful combination of both biblical scholarship and real-world activism that actually creates a different vision of how the world could be. I first encountered Ched Myers just over 10 years ago when I studied his seminal commentary on Mark's Gospel called Binding the Strongman. Uh, It is uh, commentary on the Bible unlike any other. Uh, You may not have ever read a biblical commentary, but most of them are so boring that you just want to start stabbing yourself in the face just to make the time pass in a more enjoyable way. But... What Ched Myers did was completely different. Instead of dissecting this word and that word and laboriously uh, trawling through all of the various meanings, taking the text apart, Myers puts the text together. He tells a story about the story. Uh, and does so in a way that revolutionized biblical scholarship. This was back in the late 1980s when almost no biblical commentary dealt with the political reality of the context of the Bible itself. And Myers produced this powerful political reading of the gospel that takes seriously the Roman imperial context, the Jewish temple establishment in their collaboration with Rome, and Jesus as a non-violent revolutionary figure. Myers followed up Binding the man with a part two called Who Will Roll Away the Stone? And it's a response to his commentary on Mark, but in the context he finds himself in the early 90s, in Los Angeles, in North America, trying to make sense of the powerful narrative shaping the culture that he is part of and using his reading of the Gospel of Mark to explore the real-world activism he and the communities that he is part of are engaging with in that context. I wanted to give you this broader introduction to Ched Myers because I want to give you the opportunity to get more into his work if you're interested. Uh, One interesting and quite listenable way in, I thought, was uh, Ched Myers was interviewed by uh, a man called Rob Bell who has a podcast called The Robcast, episode 153 of The Robcast is that interview. And it's a great listen, a way into understanding about Ched Myers, where he comes from, what he's been involved in. Uh, His website is chedmyers.org. That's M-Y-E-R-S.org. You can find out much more there, but also particularly, if you go to the search box in the right-hand side and you type in the fool, You're going to get pretty high up in the search results both of the articles that I'm going to respond to in this uh, episode today. One of them is a PDF download uh, of an entry, uh, two entries actually, in uh, the uh, Encyclopedia of Religion and Nature. One on the story of the fall and the other an article on anarcho-primitivism and the Bible. And both of those entries are together in one PDF download that you can find for free. Uh, and then for a further $1.50 an absolute bargain you can also download The Fall of Adam and the Rise of Civilization Brief Notes on Genesis 1 to 11. And that article on Genesis 1 to 11 takes those two encyclopedia entries uh, which are incredibly readable uh, and expands them into a much fuller account of that uh, prologue to Genesis. Now for years and years if someone asked me what is your favorite TV series I had a very clear answer. Number one was The West Wing, and then a close second was a documentary series from the 1970s called The Ascent of Man, presented by this kind of polymath nuclear physicist uh, called Jacob Brunowski, or Bruno, to his friends. But what's happened over the last five or so years is that my uh, confidence in both of these series has started to be eroded, Now, I'll probably uh, have to talk about my crisis of faith in the West Wing uh, in another episode. But let's talk about my crisis of faith in The Ascent of Man. And it's relevant because Ched Myers opens his account of uh, anarcho-primitivism as a mythology that he finds deep parallels with the early Genesis account and contrasts it with Bronowski's Ascent of Man. The Ascent of Man for Ched Myers is an exemplar of the Western mythology of progress, that humankind has evolved from a very primitive form of social structure and through evolution, through the survival of the fittest, through human and cultural innovation in technology, in agriculture, in the sciences, through the arts has formed itself into a society which is far in advance of those that have come before it. Despite troubles, trials and tribulations, humanity is better off as a result of this progress than worse off. Now, The Ascent of Man, as a documentary series, hailed by many still now as the BBC's crowning TV achievement, was made in the early 1970s, I guess at that time, right at the end of the curve of the Enlightenment myth of progress. And what Myers cites as the basis for anarcho-primitivism is the anthropological work that has been done since then, or that has at least become mainstream since then, on early Homo sapiens. Contrary to Thomas Hobbes' famous claim that the lives of uncivilized humans were solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short, anarcho-primitivist anthropology suggests that these much earlier societies have been found to be healthier, more leisurely, freer, more materially satisfied, less anxious and demonstratively more ecologically sustainable than modern industrial ones. Those are Meyer's words. While the ascent of man celebrates the advance of human civilization, anarcho-primitivism sees civilization as the fall. Civilization itself is the problem. Now, Cheb Meyer's great contribution here is to read Genesis 1 to 11 from this anarcho-primitivist perspective and to pull out in ways that I find very compelling an account of how this story narrates a fall away from a garden towards a civilization. And this is a story that has become profoundly relevant for our time. Now, if you are new to the idea of anarcho-primitivism and the idea that civilization itself is the problem, that in fact what we want is an uncivilization or a return to some kind of primitivism, that idea can seem absolutely crazy, almost like a joke. But this is a very serious field of academic adventure across many disciplines who are taking seriously the violence the exploitation and poverty, and the environmental unsustainability of our current system. The idea of a primitivism is not a return to some kind of uh, primordial hunter-gatherer society. It is instead to imagine a future primitivism, which reclaims those ways of being in the world, those ways of organising ourselves, which actually were much better for us and the earth. So Ched Myers begins in the Garden of Eden. Here is a symbiosis between the humans that have been made, the animals, the plants, everything in the biosphere. Everything is living in harmony in the garden. But the fall he reads as a disaster in a way that reflects the traditional Christian perspective that the gods were right to expel even Adam that this decision of the early humans to take the fruit is a problem. The gods were right. But what's so different about Ched Myers' reading is that where Christian tradition has generally emphasised the disobedience of the early humans as a reason for their expulsion from the garden, Myers reads the reason in a similar way to how I read it in earlier episodes. That this is a growing up, that this is a loss of innocence, a coming of age, which the gods can't handle, except in Meyer's view, the gods are right to expel even Adam from the garden. The gods made a garden that was good, yes, but for the humans, not good enough, they had to take more, they had to invent more, the forbidden fruit in this reading is that primal human conceit, to use Meyer's words, that through our ingenuity, our technology and our social organisation, we can improve on the creation. Now, at this point, I find myself a bit sceptical. I mean, surely technology has improved our lives. Surely ingenuity is part of what makes being a human, interesting. Surely social organization is a way of protecting the vulnerable. But Myers situates this reading of Genesis as a response to the broader biblical narrative. This part of Genesis, as we've said before, was written after the Babylonian exile. And the Israelites were reacting to that and were trying to make sense of the experience they had been through of developing into a nation with a monarchy, of them being subject to oppression from other empires, first Assyria and then Babylon and now Persia. They were trying to process the loss of their wilderness traditions, of the tabernacle, the moving tent around which their nomadic lives could revolve and its replacement by a great temple structure, the solidity of a capital in Jerusalem, the military power of conquest, and the slavery it produced. Myers compares Genesis 1 to 11 with the kind of soul-searching that happened after 9-11 in the US, except, he says, in the US, that resulted in a scapegoating of enemies, Whereas for Genesis, it resulted in a deep questioning of the Israelites' own tradition, values, narratives, their very sense of who they were and why they had become who they had become. Using anthropological work, Myers tracks a history of Homo sapiens and the birth of what we might call civilization generally understood to have begun in Mesopotamia, within the Fertile Crescent. That's the the sort of N-shaped land that uh, goes up from Egypt uh, right across through the Levant, so uh, Israel, Palestine, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, even into southeastern Turkey, and then right round through Iraq uh, and to the very western edges of Iran. And that Fertile Crescent is really where... Civilization as we understand it began. And there's a strong case to say that it's because of the delta waterways that provided the possibility of irrigation farming. And so, nomadic pastoralists, those who would be essentially hunter gatherers, begin to settle down and farm the land. Now, as soon as you start farming the land, you have to stop moving. And when you do that, humans start coming together in villages. That kind of basic social organisation produces higher crop yields, so the population becomes greater, more people can survive, there's more food, people become stronger. And it's in that light, says Myers, that the curse of Genesis 3, that the woman would have increased pain in childbirth, is related to the greater calorie count that humans now have, and therefore the increased size of humans who are born. So this is simply a product of the growth of civilization. Now the problem of humans settling down and farming villages and increasing crop yields and populations growing is that it's not that long before those villages become cities. And cities then need to defend their territory because their territory is vital to their survival. So you immediately have these military forces which push pastoralists to marginal land. And so this is then reflected, says Myers, in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain farms the land and Abel is a nomadic pastoralist. Cain therefore symbolises this colonising, violent, settled civilization, while Abel symbolises the more indigenous pastoralist who still practice a nomadic form of existence. Myers notes that it's Cain that builds the first city, called Enoch, whose name means re-creation or inauguration, symbolising this new way of being in the world. And then Cain's great-grandson Lamech, who, uh, if you remember from episode four, uh, we translated that violence uh, in ways that were intended to parody Donald Trump. This idea that vengeance comes back from the small man. But this vengeance is built in to this structure of civilization. It is Cain who settles down to farm, builds a city, and then within a few generations, violence is embedded in his descendants and their civilized practice. And of course, in the story of the city of Babel with its great tower, we have the inevitable conclusion of what happens when civilization grows. Towers reach to the heavens. This is clearly a veiled critique of the Mesopotamian cities with which the Israelites found themselves uh, in constant encounter. That the power of this colonial force was to reach to the heavens and take the power of the gods for themselves. But, of course, they are scattered. And that is one of a series of countermeasures that Myers describes that Yahweh as the God figure engages in. The flood is another countermeasure. Read a certain way, it is a story to preserve life, particularly in the covenant that prohibits the spilling of blood. Another is the tattoo with which Yahweh marks Cain's face. It's an ambivalent symbol. Is it a warning or is it a mark of protection? And one of the ways Maya suggests we can read this is uh, as a caution to the idea that violence, the violence of Cain can just be solved by killing Cain because violence just creates more violence and turns into an uncontrollable spiral and that this may be the beginning of the idea of refuge Cities where civilization was trying to work out how to deal with the violence that had become endemic. Later uh, in the book of Numbers and again in Deuteronomy, the land of Nod, which I translated the land of wandering, but that's what it means that the land of Nod that's east of Eden, which is where Cain was sent, uh, is named as a place of refuge cities where uh, if you had committed a crime, particularly manslaughter, you could flee to this city and then be safe from the punishment of death. So this whole story is possibly a way of narrating that early structure of strategies to try and halt the cycle of violence. And then finally, chapter 11 ends, and we didn't particularly talk about this in the last episode, but it ends with this uh, genealogy right down to Abram, and the brief account of how he leaves the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, a major city, with his father, and they set out. In Meyer's words, he goes feral from the empire. So this whole story becomes a cautionary tale against the centripetal force of empire, the force that pulls everything towards its center with like a gravitational pull. And the anarcho-primitivist insight is that this is the inevitable result of civilization. That as soon as humans try to settle and produce growth, that growth leads to the need to protect and therefore to violence and the drive for conquest. Civilization leads to militarism. It leads to exploitation and poverty of those on the margins and it leads to environmental unsustainability because of the loss of a balanced relationship with the land. For Myers, as we contend with a crisis in environmental sustainability, a relentless loss of species, several every day, we contend with the exploitation and poverty of an unequal world and the constant militarism that fuels the growth of powers in this world, then aren't we still facing the same questions that the Israelites faced when reflecting on their exiled experience and putting together these texts? Don't we need to question the very idea of civilization once again? I find this a really compelling set of questions to wrestle with, partly because this way of reading the first 11 chapters of Genesis, to me, seems really compelling The argument Myers makes that this is what the original editors of Genesis were putting together, this is what they were wrestling with, and this is why they are telling the story this way, is one of the most convincing to me of any uh, version of that story. It certainly makes sense of the confusion of why Yahweh accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. that Yahweh puts himself on the side of the nomad, of the indigenous, of the pastoralist, not the farmer. And it makes sense of the tussle between Yahweh and the humans. It is a way of reading this story positively from the perspective of the God figure, that in trying to limit humanity, the God figure is doing humankind a favor. We do tend to think of freedom as the ability to just do whatever we like. But the freedom to just go and wander in a desert, for example, doesn't mean life. The freedom to exploit the earth might mean expulsion from the garden, from the symbiotic life that experiences harmony, sustainability and mutual dependence with the earth. Are we free? Are we free? In a very real way, we're really not free This is the reality of the world that we live in. We're not free. Civilization hasn't bought us freedom. There are things that we really enjoy. There's technology we really value. And I don't just mean like your iPhone or your computer. I mean like your house, your car, the wheel, the pestle and mortar. I mean just the most basic technology has made our lives unaccountably easier than they would have been otherwise. But we're not free. The economic system we live within gives us the opportunity to have wealth way beyond what we could have had otherwise. But we're not free. Our society's military investments keep us safe and secure, supposedly. But we're not free. We are free by so many standards. In my country, at least, I'm free to travel wherever I would like. I'm free to marry who I want. I'm free to have children or not have children. I have free health care. I have the freedom over where I study, over what job I do to earn money. But I'm always watched, always dependent, always at the mercy of the powerful. Now, this account of my freedoms is partly to do with my own social location and the privilege that comes with that. But it is also bound up in broader questions of civilization. The limitations we accept in order to experience other freedoms. We trade in one set of freedoms in order to get another. This reading of these Genesis chapters cautions us, asks us to question, do we really have the freedoms we value the most? I find myself compelled by anarcho-primitivism and this reading of Genesis and at the same time disturbed and confused by it. On the one hand I want radical social change, I want greater equality, I want more environmental sustainability, I want peace, not military power, I want collaboration, cooperation, interdependence, not domination and violation and exploitation. But I don't know that I really trust the idea that abandoning human ingenuity or technology or social organisation would somehow return us to some primordial utopia. But I don't think Myers would say so either. What I find most compelling about him and his work is that all of these ideas, in the end, are stories that become embedded in communities of activism, reflection, formation wrestling, tussling with the dominant order, the systems of our day that force us into this way and that way. And so in that way, anarcho-primitivism becomes a counter-narrative, a form of resistant imagination that leads to concrete practices of community that are more sustainable, that find themselves on the economic edge, that cross political and economic boundaries that are set up for the benefit of a system of an economic system of control and exploitation, in an attempt to go feral from the empire and undermine it from within. As I reflect on all this, I'm reminded of what is without question the most powerful moment in the TV documentary series The Ascent of Man, this mythology of Western progress to which Meyer's anarcho-primitivism is opposed. It's near the end of Bronowski's series in an episode on knowledge or certainty and he's dealt with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle but he visits Auschwitz and Bronowski is a Polish Jew whose family had to flee Europe from anti-semitism and he visits Auschwitz for this episode and this is a place in which many of his relatives were murdered and in Auschwitz there's a pond where the ashes of the burned bodies are deposited And Bronowski kneels down for the final scene of the episode by that pond. And I've heard him talk about this in a subsequent interview. This was a one-take moment, his one chance to respond. He didn't know what he was going to say after this harrowing experience and a personal experience from his own family. And there he is as a great scientist, a celebrated scientist. And the words he finds to say is a quote from Oliver Cromwell. I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you may be mistaken. And kneeling by that lake of death, he looks up into the camera and says, this is what men do when they aspire to the knowledge of gods. Whether we celebrate technology or despise it, whether we long for better central social organisation as a principle of justice or want devolution and dispersal, whether we believe ingenuity saves us or kills us, for me, I want to think it possible that we are mistaken and that in the uncertainty and complexity which now characterises our scientific disciplines, And that in response to the simple certainty, the powers that want to dominate the world both this way and that way, there's a complex uncertainty. The uncertainty of these first 11 chapters of Genesis where I don't know is God good or bad. Are these new humans creative innovators or destructive colonizers where the ethics of garden and offering and flood and tower are confused? That in this uncertainty, there is the potential for healing our broken relationship with the earth. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Bible Pirate. But we'll see you next time for more Stories Beyond the Horizon.